This Week at Hope Point. And our objective as the army of Christ is to fight for this truth to be maintained. The purity of this truth to be preserved. And this is the greatest threat to the health of the church. Because it is by this truth that people are saved. It's Jesus who says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. So if we lose the truth, we lose Jesus. And if we lose Jesus, there is no salvation. We're so glad to have you join us for today's message. We pray that it would challenge and encourage you to applaud God, follow Christ, and live on mission. Let's listen now as Caleb speaks to us from God's holy word. Like I said, we'll be in the short one chapter book of Jude. It's the second to last book of the Bible right before Revelation where we have been. Hopefully you're familiar with where that is now from our time there. Just go one book before that to Jude. And we're going to be looking at the first four verses today as we, as we seek to see what it means to, to fight for the faith. You know, being a, growing up as a missionary kid and now being a missions pastor, one of the things that the perks that goes with that is a lot of flying air travel. And I love it. I love being on airplanes. But in my lifetime, the process of flying on an airplane has changed drastically from what it used to be. Back before a world-changing, history-altering event of of 9-11, if you remember before those days, flying on a plane was like going to the grocery store. You just, you showed up. You didn't have to have an ID. You didn't have to take your shoes off. You just sort of walked through a very laid back security. The, the whole point of security at airports before that event was to be invisible. This was a convenient, easy to do process. Many of you remember traveling that way where there was not much to it. And all of that came to a screeching halt the early morning of September 11th as 19 terrorist suicide bombers would just slip through security armed with razor blades Knives, explosives, completely unnoticed. Actually, a few of them would trigger the alarms as they walked through and get the beep, but nobody did anything about it because you just didn't do that. People could carry knives as long as they were small enough onto a plane. There wasn't anything to be alarmed about. And so these 19 men just waltzed safely onto these aircrafts, armed, ready to wreak havoc not only upon the hundreds of people that were boarded the planes with them, but the thousands of innocent people on the ground whose lives would be forever changed when those airplanes were weaponized and crashed into towers. All of us, all of us recognize the severity of that event in history, in our lives. We, we all of us remember that. And yet it was so subtle how it was set up. The inside threat and so now we, we don't complain about the massive crowds that we're faced with in the airport. The three hours early you have to show up. I literally had the gate closed in front of me on my way to Vermont a month ago for a trip for the church because of waiting in an hour-long security line. And we don't complain. If you have any reason, we don't complain because we recognize the seriousness of what's at stake We thank them for making us remove our shoes and our belts and going through our bags. It might be annoying, but we recognize it's worth it 
because of the danger. I, actually, in Vermont, I couldn't even bring back my, I got a jar of Vermont maple syrup. I couldn't even bring it back because it was bigger than, what, four ounces or whatever that is. It's dangerous material there. They wouldn't let me bring it back to South Carolina. But we don't complain because we know what's at stake. The inside threat we were ready for the threat out there across the pond in another land. But when the threat came to us and crept inside, slipped through security, sat on board the aircraft, we had no answers. We weren't ready for it. And it was that threat that completely decimated us. I think it's that type of intensity that Jude writes with because he realizes that most of the time it's not the overt obvious outside threat that causes the most damage. It's the subtle, quiet, sneaky danger that slips in, or as Jude will put it, creeps in unnoticed, that has the greatest potential to wreak havoc. We must be aware of this. That's why John MacArthur says, Satan's most effective agents, like spiritual terrorists, secretly infiltrate the church where they pass themselves off as genuine shepherds and leaders. In reality, however, they are imposters and defectors, apostates who claim to know Christ, but in fact reject him. And this is our greatest threat as a church. Not the enemy outside, but the enemy that creeps into the church, infiltrates our ranks, and creates others who fall away, who walk away, who drift off, because it was close to true, but not quite. And we're going to see that today in these first four verses of Jude. I'm going to go a little out of order as we look at these four verses, but it's because I want you to first see the adversary that we're up against, and then I want us to hear Jude's appeal, and then I want us to close by checking our attitude. And I think that's the best way for us to really comprehend what Jude is getting at. First, our adversary, we see it in verse four. It's the apostate. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. You'll notice there are three observations, if you will, about this adversary, about the apostate, the false teacher that I want us to be aware of as we prepare to identify them and watch out for them. First off, they creep into the church. We wouldn't fall for it if they did otherwise. They don't broadcast that they're coming. It's subtle. They sneak in, creep in unnoticed. Peter says the same thing in 2 Peter 2.1. False prophets also arose among the people, looking back, and then he's now looking to the audience he's addressing and saying, just as there will be false prophets among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies. A lot of people agree that Peter and Jude are writing to the same audience. Peter speaks in the future tense, warning them about what's coming, and now Jude writes about the danger that has arrived. That's why he speaks in the present tense. They have crept in unnoticed. They are doing this now. It's happening. Peter warned about it though. Also, Paul did as well when he wrote to the Galatians, yet because of false brothers and who secretly brought in, who slipped in, again, slipped in, they crept in, they snuck in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery. Again, there's this first point about the apostate, about the false teacher they're sneaky. It's almost true what they say. And churches in our country everywhere today are faced with this type of slippery teaching that's almost right, almost true. 
but not quite. Matter of fact, just months ago, a few months ago, in this city, a church in this city, not out there, not out west, up north, this city, Spartanburg, a few months back, a church was in disagreement about what to do with the LGBTQ community. Should we perform in our church weddings, a a, a union of two homosexual individuals in this church? Should we honor that? Should we have that happen in this church? And also, should we affirm ordaining a gay man to be a minister or a gay woman to be a minister of our church? Should we ordain them into the ministry? And the church was split. Actually, a lot of the church, it seems like the people of the church were holding to a traditional biblical understanding of, of gender and of God's design and the leadership, the pastors of the church. Quoting the man himself, Wesley said this to appease the people and to sort of assuage them and soothe their concerns. For opinions or terms, let us not destroy the work of God. We don't have to agree on everything. Does, do you love and serve God? That's enough. I give thee the right hand of fellowship. And we hear that and we say, that sounds good. That sounds close enough. That sounds right. We don't have to agree on everything. Do you love the God I love? Do you serve the God I serve? Then yes, we can have fellowship. And absolutely, that is true. You can like Chick-fil-A sauce and I can like Zaxby's sauce. You can prefer this and I can prefer that. And we can have fellowship. But when it comes to the truth of what God ordains to be right and wrong, when it comes to the way that God has designed the world to work and human beings to operate and connect with one another and the rules he makes about sin and truth and righteousness, of these things, we we cannot just say, hey, agree to disagree. Because I believe God would determine what it means to love and serve him. And what does he say? If you love me, you will obey my commands. If you do not obey my commands, well, we must not love and serve the same God. So you you see what they did, how, how close it was, how sneaky it was. And I watched the leaders of this church in this city calm down their concerned members by saying, it's okay that this individual that we want to ordain completely disagrees with what we say about the authority of Scripture. It's okay. John Wesley says it's okay. It's slippery. It creeps in. This is the danger of the false teacher, the first danger. But go back to verse 4 here. They also are called ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master. So the second and third thing we see about them is they pervert the grace of God and they deny the authority of Christ. Christ's authority is completely denied. And you look at these second and third points and say, well, how is it possible for them to creep in if they're doing something so obvious, something so overt? Well, really, there's some overlap here. Some of the enemy teachers that Jude is referring to are these Gnostics, And the Gnostics would believe that there's a clear separation between the physical realm, your body, and the spiritual realm, your belief in a God and and this work of Jesus Christ to offer grace by his sacrifice on the cross. And it's possible for you to just completely sever those two and live however you would like to live, do whatever you want to do with your body, give in to all the sensuality it talked about in verse four, no consequences, 
and then pay your dues to Jesus all up here in your mind and, and, and you know, claim to, to be a believer in the gospel. Sounds kind of like some country songs I've heard before. The, what you do during the week is one thing, and as long as you show up and put some money in the plate on Sunday, right? That's the, the modern Gnostic gospel there, sounds like. But this is how we pervert the grace of God because it looks at the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, this undeserved gift, pardoning sinners, saying, I will not count your faults against you. I will give you my righteousness and saying, I think I'll just keep living the way I was defiling my body, defiling the relationships of my life, defiling the, wor- the good world you've created. No thanks. It's a perversion of God's grace. And at the same time, it's a denial of Christ's authority. Jesus, you can die on the cross. You can forgive my sins. You can do all that to save me from hell, but you have no right to tell me what to do with my life. This is the subtle teaching that Jude is warning against. And it's slippery. It's sneaky. We hear whispers of it today. Just follow your heart. Trust yourself. You take care of you. Do your thing. Just self-realize. Realize yourself. It's a good, your heart's a good captain. Do you see that here? A perversion of the grace God has offered us and a denial of the authority of God in our life to, to tell us what is right Tell us how we ought to live. As Paul would tell Titus, they profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny him. We cannot separate the two. And this is the slippery way of the false teacher, of the apostate. Just to kind of sum it up, Jude will say in verse eight, these people also relying on their dreams, following their heart, following their feelings, trusting their gut, they defile the flesh, they reject authority, they blaspheme the glorious ones. And they lead you to follow suit. That's why we we can't take this lightly. This is no small enemy. This is nothing to shrug off and let someone else worry about. This is our adversary, the false teacher. Graduates, watch out for this teaching. I don't think you have ever been as exposed to false teaching. I don't think you've ever had as much access to false teachers as you do now. Maybe they've never had as much access to you as they did until now. Because you don't have to go to one of their conferences. You don't have to buy their book. You don't have to be a member of their church. It's in your timeline, your newsfeed. It's all over your Spotify. It's there. And it almost sounds right. We must be on our guard for this. We, we can't just accept that if they have a Bible in their hand, they're trustworthy or the word reverend in their Twitter bio, that they're reliable. Don't let the size of their gathering or the number of their followers or subscribers be what proves to you that they're a reliable source of truth. I don't think Jesus is handing out blue check marks. Only the young people got that one, I think. So Twitter. We have to be on our guard for this. It's so prevalent. So that's, that's our adversary, but how about the appeal, this, uh, this agonizing appeal? We see it in verse three, beloved, and I love that he addresses in this way. He loves to use that phrase throughout the book of Jude, beloved, and we'll see it even in his greeting, this, this idea of being beloved in God. He loves the church, and I love the church, and I want the church to be preserved. This is the bride of Christ we're talking about. We have to get this right. 
He says, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, he had some original intentions about writing them. I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. His plans changed. He had to change his, his tone in what he planned to write. The way uh, Warren Wearsby puts it is, Jude had started to write a quiet devotional letter about salvation, but the Spirit led him to put down his harp and sound the trumpet. The epistle of Jude is a call to arms. It was going to be this, you know, relaxed letter about salvation. You could sip your coffee and read it peacefully. But he heard news of this false teaching sneaking into the church. And he said, it cannot wait. He had to pin down quickly a letter to call them into action, to wake them up. Be on your guard. Be ready. And what is it that he calls them to? He calls them to contend for the faith. Fight for the faith. This word faith that he uses, he's not referring to like the active faith, like believing in the good news or the faith that would save you or what we would typically think of in the, the action of having faith. He's referring to the, the body of beliefs, the collection of beliefs about God and the gospel and who Jesus is and who we are and what he says about reality and truth. The collection of all those things is what he means by the faith. This is the, the Christian faith, the Christian canon, so to speak. And he says, this is what you're called to fight for. Fight to hold on to the Christian faith, the truth, we could put it. And notice the phrase that he puts after it, that was once for all delivered, past tense, to the saints. This Christian faith, the truth, everything in this book has already been delivered to the church. And he qualifies that once for all. There's a period at the end of the truth that has been handed to the saints. And what that means is there's nothing to be added, nothing to be removed, nothing to be changed, only that it be preserved, proclaimed, and lived by. Does that make sense? Once for all delivered to the saints, we preserve it. We don't add to it. We don't change it. And our objective as the army of Christ is to fight for this truth to be maintained, the purity of this truth to be preserved. And this is the greatest threat to the health of the church because it is by this truth that people are saved. It's Jesus who says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. So if we lose the truth, we lose Jesus. And if we lose Jesus, there is no salvation. This is why we fight. We want people to have access to the truth so that they may be saved. And if we let these false teachers creep in and divert our attention away from the truth and dilute the truth and even destroy the truth, there is no way to be saved. So we must preserve it. We must guard it. We must fight for it. We must preserve it at all cost. Nothing is more urgent for us today as a church. We don't apologize for it. We don't soften the blow to make it more appealing to culture. We don't read in between the lines or color in the harsh parts. We boldly proclaim it as it is, as the only truth that can save. 
And if it's rejected, then fine, but let it not be lost. We cannot let the truth of the gospel, God's truth, be lost. This is why we fight. This is what we're fighting for. That word he uses here for contend, it's a big one. I'm gonna try this out. I need one of the graduates to help me pronounce this. Epagonizomai. That word in the middle, the only word that we need to pay attention to, agonize, is where it comes from. Jude says this is a cause that is worth our agony. It's worth whatever price we have to pay to preserve this truth. Not for the sake of winning an argument or for bullying the opposition or for being belligerent or closed-minded or bigoted, but because we long to see people experience life from this truth. Go back to Galatians, the verse I read earlier, Galatians 2, talking about these guys that slipped in. Look at what, how Paul and the other apostles responded. To them, we did not yield in submission, even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. This is the heart of the Christian warrior. I will not let the gospel of Jesus Christ be tainted with. I want it preserved so that you get a chance to hear it. The Christian heart says, I want every human to hear the untainted, unperverted, unchanged gospel of transformation through Jesus Christ. And so we fight to preserve this truth. This is our calling. It reminds me of William Tyndale, one of the greatest examples of this, uh, just a hero of the faith. After hearing Luther's 95 Theses, he was in Germany studying. He begins to study these, these, these documents and other writers of the Reformation, and his heart was just torn for his people back in England. These people who were being exploited by the Catholic Church because God's word was only being read in Latin and nobody knew what they were saying. And the leaders of the church, the false teachers of the church were exploiting people because they had no awareness of the truth. And Tyndale knew that until they could see scripture in their own, hear it in their own native tongue, they would have no way to be established in the truth. And so he said it about himself to translate the Bible into a language they could understand. His own kinsmen could understand. His, his vision was that the plowboy would have the same access to scripture as the Pope. But he couldn't do it in England, so he hopped all over Europe, staying on the run, translating the New Testament, and then into the, the Old Testament. He didn't quite get to finish the Old Testament before he was finally captured. As he's on the run, what they said about him, Stephen Vaughn said about him, I find him always singing one note. No matter what it takes, no matter what cost I have to pay, my people will hear the truth in a language they can understand. He would go as far as to say to the king, you can take me, you can take my life, I'll hand it over to you as long as you promise to finish the job for me. And finally, in 1526, they were able to begin smuggling into England in bales of hay, an English copy of scripture, and it sold out. And he was captured for it. In 1536, he was killed. Uh, they strangled him and then burnt him at the stake, not willing to give in at all, finally achieving what he, what he sought out to achieve. And though they silenced his voice, his blood, sweat, and tears poured into the, the God's word were circulated all over England because he was willing to sacrifice, willing to fight for the preservation of the truth. 
We don't let anybody mess with the truth of what God has done and what God says. It's worth the fight. But finally, the attitude of this army of Christ, because this is, this is just as key, and this is why I wanted to end here. I mentioned these false teachers all over social media and YouTube, and for every one of those, there's at least a handful of Bible-thumping, scouring crusaders ready to pick apart every soundbite and label every single teacher a false teacher. Something about the human condition that makes us want to throw stones and pick apart and debate and fight. This is not what I'm calling us to. This is not the attitude of a servant in Christ's army. So I want us to look at the greeting that Jude gives to determine what is the attitude. How are we really to think about this fight for the preservation of the truth? Look at how Jude addresses the, the church here. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. First off, a servant. This is a common title that, that these epistle writers would give for themselves. The word doulos there is a, a, a bond servant, someone who is literally surrendering their rights, handing over their rights to someone else, offering their service and saying, I, I no longer, I'm withholding all of my own personal individual rights for the service of you and your cause. And Jude says, that's who I am to Jesus Christ. And also, so that's a humble greeting, but anybody can call themselves a servant. Just calling yourself one doesn't make you humble. People who say, I'm really humble, usually aren't really humble. Um, but look, at, he puts it into action. He says, and brother of James. And this is key because James would have been the brother of Jesus. Jude, we believe, is the half-brother of Jesus. Full name would have been Judas, going for Jude for short here brother, half-brother of Jesus. But he doesn't play that card in his greeting. I mean, wouldn't that have really like boosted his ego, his presence, his credibility to the audience? Y'all know Jesus? You ever heard of him? It's my brother. He leaves that out. He didn't believe in Jesus as Savior until after the resurrection. He didn't get the credit to say, hey, I saw him for what he was. He says, I'll take the humble role of a servant. Reminds me of what Paul says of Christ, that he didn't consider equality with God as something to be grasped. Jude doesn't consider familial equality with Jesus as something to showboat or brag about. I'll be his doulos. I'll be his bondservant. Just call me the brother of James, which was still a kind of a brag because James was a big deal too, but not nearly as big as Jesus. So this greeting, we see a humble posture in Jude as a warrior for Christ. Humility needs to be a part of the way we address this issue. If not, our own pride and our ego will send us guns a-blazing into the culture, pointing our finger at everybody, starting fights on Twitter and being labeled bigots as many in the Christian faith have been labeled for years. This is not what Jude is calling us to. Then look at what he says to the actual church. He gives them three labels here. Those who are called, those who are beloved in God, and those who are kept for Jesus. These first two here, called and beloved. So critical for us as the church to be reminded of. That's why he throws it into the greeting. You are here in the body of Christ, not because you picked it. You're here because God called you to himself. This is all his work done on your behalf. I love the way one writer put it. The church is not a choice 
people. They are a chosen people. God didn't pick you for himself because you showed a lot of potential in the womb. He picked you out of his love for you and his love for his glory displayed in loving you. Not because you earned it. Not because you deserved it. Not because you asked for it. And we are beloved in him as well. I love how it's put in 1 John 3, 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us. The NIV would say the Father has lavished upon us. That we should be called children of God. And so we are. This reality is true. We are children of God, not because we asked to be or we earned it or we did the right stuff, simply because of the love of God, lavished, just poured out on us. It's written to sort of sound like this alien type love, this otherworldly love that we could never understand, that we could never exhibit, that he would call a people to himself and wrap them up in his love. That he would send his son who lived righteously for his entire life and actually out of love pour himself out on the cross for wicked sinful human beings who had rejected him. That's a love we don't understand. And it's a love that was given to us. We're beloved in God. And then finally kept for Jesus Christ. This is one of the most beautiful realities for the Christian. Just as It was his work to bring you in, to call you, to love you, to die for you. It is his work to keep you in. You don't believe me? Let Jesus say it for himself in John 10. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life because I call them and I love them and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Amen to that. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. It is God himself who keeps you. All three of those words, this is the English teacher in me, called, beloved, kept. Those are passive voice verbs, meaning you and me did nothing. God is the actor of these events. God is the one responsible for these verbs, calling, beloving, and keeping. So he throws that in there as a beautiful reminder. Stay humble. Remember what has been done for you. Don't be quick to become haughty or malicious in the fight for truth. And then he goes a step further. He loves these little triads, these groups of three, so call, beloved, kept. And then he throws this little triple blessing here at the end. of the the greeting. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. I love that little phrase there at the end, multiplied to you. It says, though, to say, to be fully maxed out to the fullest extent possible. Have as much of it as you can possibly handle until you're busting at the seams of mercy and peace and love. All, again, gifts Blessings from God to you on your behalf for his glory, not out of your own doing. That God has, by his choice, chosen to have mercy on you and not make you pay for your sins in hell. That God has offered peace, a peace treaty with his enemies. He has made you right with him. He's given you peace in your heart. The peace that Richard spoke of last week that awakened him to the goodness of the gospel. Peace and all out of his deep love for you. And what is the outcome of the believer being filled to the brim with mercy and peace and love? 
We ought to see everyone around us through that lens. Wanting everyone to experience this too. Everyone to experience the mercy of God. Everyone to experience peace with God. Peace in their heart. Peace with mankind. Everyone to get to experience this otherworldly type of love that we just cannot quite pinpoint a definition to other than look at Jesus. And it's that heart that fuels our fight for the church to maintain the truth. It's that heart. It's not a gung-ho riot or a bullying fest on Twitter or in the classroom. It's our desire to fight for the truth of the Christian faith so that others, more people, would experience God's mercy. That more people would experience God's peace. That more people would experience the love of a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. This is why we fight. Not to win an argument. We fight because the truth is authentic and valuable and worth it and God's glory demands it. We fight because we believe it's true and we fight because we love people. This is how Jude will close the book and we'll, we'll get to it later on when I get to the book another time. But he says, and have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. We take that mercy and that love that he mentioned in the greeting and we combine it with just a deep awareness and urgency of what's at stake. We hate even the garment stained by the flesh, but with every ounce of our being, we seek to just snatch people out of the fire showing mercy on them, that they too would get to experience the truth of this gospel. This is the beautiful blending of what you hear so much here at this church of truth and love. That in love, we would be willing to speak the truth to people. Schreiner, Thomas Schreiner says that our churches are prone to sentimentality. They suffer from moral breakdown and too often they fail to pronounce a definitive word of judgment because of an inadequate definition of love. The only adequate definition of love must be incorporated with the truth. We think we love people when we don't tell them the truth. When we muddy the waters to appease society. When we get too involved with the culture wars and trying to bring everybody on the same page and just agree to disagree. That's not love. Love is someone who's willing to tell the truth. But love doesn't tell the truth to win a fight. Love tells the truth to snatch someone from the grips of hell. So may we be like Jude. May we be humble servants, never haughty or slanderous. May we seek to show mercy and not malice. And may we uphold the truth, even at the cost of agony, never showing apathy for this fight. This is the fight of the church. We would cling to the truth of this book, live by it, proclaim it to others, and not let anyone tamper with the truth. It's a great cause to fight for. Out of love for God and the beauty of His truth, and love for people and a desire to see them saved. Church, let's stand and fight. We hope you've enjoyed this podcast from Hope Point Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. 
If you would like to learn more about us or give to this ministry, please go to our website at hopepoint.org. We hope you can join us again next week.